0: Welcome to Hidden Layers, where we explore the tech and the people behind artificial intelligence. I'm Ron Green. I'm excited to be joined today by Reed Koch. Reed is Director of Engineering at Kung Fu AI and an expert in natural language processing with a background in both industry and research. His areas of expertise include conversational AI and linguistics. Reed is deeply passionate about the ways in which language, communication, and AI education influence our world. He holds a master's degree in computer science from the University of Michigan at Ar- Ann Arbor. Welcome, Reed. Thanks, Ron. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna jump into some some deep waters in a little bit, but let's start at the beginning. Um, let's describe what are large language models and how they work fundamentally.
1: Sure. So The way that I think about it, and I should add, you know, I've been doing NLP for over 10 years, and that makes me, if anything, just really crotchety about stuff. (laughs) Um, I think about it as mostly a really good autocomplete. And, you know, everyone's used autocomplete before. They have it on their phone. You have kind of an idea of there's some amount of a window of the last couple things you typed, and then it's going to add the next most likely word and the next most likely word, and you just do that over and over. But it turns out that if you make that window big enough and you you know, have enough patterns to draw from by reading terabytes from the internet, um, you can get pretty specific, and that's basically what it's doing. There's one really important difference, though, uh, and something that uh, matters to me as a linguist, which is that usually these autocomplete systems before large language models we were trying to come up with the correct next word. And that's not the goal of a large language model. A large language model is trying to construct an overall response that a human would find useful. Um, And specifically, to be a little bit more technical about it, that one of their annotators would have marked as useful during the RLHF process. Right,
0: right, during the the sort of the final process after you have a sort of a raw model. So just to kind of... Um, add to that, these LLMs, despite their amazing capability, have a really sort of simple training process, right? They're just trying to correctly predict the next word given some input context. And if you train them on enough data um, and you have enough learnable parameters, uh, we're finding they can do some pretty amazing things. Um, so everybody's, <clears throat> everybody's familiar with ChatGPT pretty much at this point. What are some other ways that large language models are being used? You're actually building systems that go into production. Can you talk a little bit about that and your experiences?
1: Yeah, I can. I have to be a little vague, but happy happy to work around that. Uh, You know, I think when people think about ChatGPT, or at least uh, when my mom thinks about ChatGPT, who asks me about it often, um, it's really kind of a a better chatbot you might say, right? It's very much about this dialogue and back and forth. And what uh, we're finding professionally is really that that's actually probably not the best way to be using these types of systems. They're incredible in the ways that they can understand things and it actually makes them very good at categorizing a diverse set of inputs or um, expanding, you know, here's 10 examples of something, give me another five um, which has a surprising amount of applications, right? actually. Right. Um, it's not so much, you know, oh, you know, there used to be a customer service rep, let's have ChatGPT do it instead. It's much more of, you know, hey, there are people, let's give them some tools to do what they're doing faster, um, or give them a starting point that they can edit from that's good enough that it's not actually more work to edit it than it is to just make it in the first place.
0: Right, right. And so. So one of the things that I, I think is really interesting is most people are using large language models interactively. And you have experience in production using them in a way that is sort of a slightly mediated. Yeah. Um, can you maybe talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, when you look at a lot of technical diagrams of these systems, they're built up from these previous ideas in transformers of kind of an encoder and a decoder. Uh, in short, the encoder is focused on understanding the input and then the decoder is focused on creating output, whether that is more language or an action, knowing what action to take or something like that. Right. Um, a lot of the current applications are really leveraging its ability to encode stuff, to understand, uh, to create kind of more like contextually relevant behaviors or something. Um, but there's a gap that is very interesting to me, which is that it's very good at encoding. It's not. I don't actually think it's that great at decoding. I don't think that the things that ChatGPT says are that impressive, but I think the fact that it knows why I said what I said and has some idea of what I was fishing for is deeply, deeply impressive. And that's also where we're seeing most of the traction uh, in industry.
0: Hm. Okay. Fantastic. Um, and… and... When you're using these large language models in production settings, are you constrained or are you finding them fairly flexible across different domains?
1: I think that they're pretty flexible, but it is a little bit of a difficult uh, thing to think about just because the range of what it can do is so large. Mm-hmm. So it's often hard to say what is the constraint of the model versus, oh, we'll just spend another week trying to find a better prompt that actually does do that. Right. It's very hard to assess what they can and can't do. But in general, they're pretty impressively flexible as long as you're playing to their strengths.
0: And you're willing to put the time into the prompt engineering. Yeah. Group, which, which is really, I think we've both been surprised by how much... Uh, time we've spent on that in production engagements this year and how effective it can be.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that time spent, you know, I'd be remiss not to, to highlight a lot of that time is coming up with better prompts. An equal measure of that time is figuring out if the new prompt is actually better or not, which is to say measuring. Right, right.
0: Um, okay, perfect segue. I want I want to get into sort of the heart of the conversation around selecting a large language model and how, how our listeners can think about it and go about making the right choices. And I know there are lots of different elements that go into that. So just at a high level, could you maybe kind of talk, talk us through the things that you think are important when choosing an LLM?
1: Yeah. I would say it's, it's both very complicated and maybe deceptively simple. I brought some notes for the complicated part. Fantastic. Fantastic. Um, Very, very detailed notes. (laughs) Um, There's, you know, if I were to like write it all down and make a pros and cons list and kind of take that approach, there would be kind of these six big pillars that I would be thinking about, uh, which just quickly, it's cost, latency, stability, privacy, security, and performance. Um, The simple version of that is most LLMs you pick are going to do well if you're doing the right thing with them. And any LLM you pick is going to do very poorly if you're not strategic about what problem you're tackling. Okay.
0: Okay. And so digging into some of those, like, what are some of the cost considerations that you, that you see?
1: Yeah. So cost is actually, to me as a consultant, maybe the most interesting one because there are a lot of kind of little pitfalls in it, um, you know, different APIs out there, different systems have very different costs, right? GPT-4 is one of the more expensive ones uh, because it's one of the more powerful ones, conceptually. Right. Um, There's, you know, Claude also. Claude specializes in creative writing, they say. um, And as a result, it can take these very, very long prompts, which makes it more expensive. Right, right. Um, And there are a lot of other smaller models that have been kind of distilled down to just the necessary parts that might take more work uh, on your hand, making like, kind of bringing them to life and ensuring quality, but also are a lot cheaper. Um, or you can host one that's not an API, and then you're paying for the computer, you're not paying for access. Right. So then that, that's a whole different set of things. Um, but one of the big pitfalls that has been really interesting and has, um, I think, surprised a lot of folks as we've gotten into generative AI more, is it's very, very important to think about how the LLM is actually going to get surfaced to its users because, uh, it turns out, you know, if you have a button in your app that someone can press to see something funny or see something personalized or something, they're going to press it a lot. It's it's not a slot machine, but it's a little bit, a slot machine. Um, and so you know if every time a user presses that button it's a call to the api which is cost for you um that's going to be a really expensive way of bringing the capability forward compared to something more controlled. you sort of
0: have you sort of have an unbounded potential cost liability there Yeah.
1: okay yeah exactly
0: um sorry right, so i want to transition a little bit into specific metrics around llm selection so when you're evaluating a large language model are there are there metrics that you're looking at when you, when you are choosing which ones to go into production, like um, latency, uh, context window, um,
1: domains? Right. I, you know, people, I think, joke that the consultant answer is always it depends. Um, but I think that's why I'm here to explain that. So it does depend. Right. It's, you might have a system where you need it to be immediate. And that's going to disqualify a whole bunch of them. You might have a system where you only have, you know, a total budget that you can hit every month or something. That's going to disqualify a lot of them. So I find it to be a little bit less useful to compare them in abstract versus here's how we're going to use it, what's best for this. Uh, And that sort of takes you from this world of maybe what you could call an intrinsic evaluation of how good the model is to this extrinsic, It's not how good is the model, but it is what is using this model mean for my users' outcomes versus what is using a different model mean for my users' outcomes. And then you care about all the typical things you would care about. You start to care about engagement and satisfaction or, um, you know, uh, what is the phrase I'm thinking of? It's... Extremely common, and it has slipped off my tongue. You have, det- you know, a detractors, promoters, NPS is what I'm thinking. Oh, about. net promoter, right? Score. Like you get yeah. into that world, right. As right. opposed to the sort of like F1 score and perplexity and all these right. highly scientific things that, at the end of the day, are divorced from probably what you really care about. Well, it's
0: one of the most challenging parts about selecting, uh, it, selecting and comparing performance yeah. between the models because we can use we can use um, single or Maybe just a handful of metrics, in, in most other modeling scenarios, with language models, it's just so much more complicated. Once you begin to connect them into the real world, because their usability as a human is the ultimate list, litmus test, and that's that's just kind of hard to uh, pin down with
1: a single metric. Yeah, and this isn't a new problem either. No. This was a, a, especially for language models. You know, BERT was the big exciting language model before Absolutely. the new time of LLMs. And you had the same thing. You could look at these abstract scores of how well BERT recreates the text it read, um, or you could plug it into a question-answering system and see how many questions it answers right. And hypothetically, if you had a better version of BERT, it would get more questions right. And I think ultimately that's at least a more tangible way to assess what it means for you right, right. in a space with so many different options. Right.
0: So if, so if you're looking at... Very specialized domains like healthcare or um, the legal domain. What what special um, criteria or what what additional considerations need to be made when
1: selecting a large language model? Yeah. So in the older world of language models, small language models, I guess you could call them now, uh, there was a question of vocabulary the model just might not know what acetaminophen means. Right. It doesn't, might not have a concept of that. Um, and that's not so much the case anymore, I think, yeah. um, which is kind of just a function of that large part of the large language models. But there's still... Uh, it goes back to, I guess, what I was talking about earlier, which is it's a question of usefulness. These language models are trained to generate things that an annotator called useful during training. And if you have a system that was specifically trained in the medical domain, that idea of usefulness is probably very different from just this kind of general purpose system. Right, right. That at least in the case of ChatGPT was sort of like a science experiment originally. Right,
0: right. And, and there are there are increasingly um, uh, available as open source models, um, language models that have been trained on domain specific data sets. So they yes. may they may have been trained on um, uh, popular data sets like the pile and other things like that, but then they were fine-tuned on a corpus that was domain-specific. Um, do you feel that that is sort of a, an important task in um, getting a
1: language model to be uh, really um, successful in a domain? I think so. I think that it's you can still find success with a more general-purpose one with very careful prompting and very careful thought about how to deploy it. But if you want to offload some of that work, I think you're going to have a much easier time picking something specialized or putting it a little bit differently. Um, I have a friend uh, and like 60 to 70% of his opinions are parroting Reddit and he is hard to be around. (laughs) So in that sense, you might want something that is trained Uh, a a little bit more specifically too.
0: I love it. Okay, let's 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 transition and talk a little bit about the ethical and legal considerations that go into this. Because, um, uh, again, in healthcare, as an example, um, you know, model hallucinations can be a real problem, and yeah. then you have and then you have other issues around um, licensing, um, and the availability of of these open source models to be used for commercial purposes, and it's kind of all mixed together. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I. Th- it's one of those things that feels to me like uh, the best laid plans will still go awry here, right? You can be as careful as possible, and there's probably some little weird nook in the space of things that it can do that is bad. Um, and so you end up needing to spend a lot of time on things like red teaming or on other types of ways to kind of put guardrails around the experience that the model can create uh, unless you want to give up a car for a buck. Like I, all right, uh, so point. I was
0: going to bring that up. So that's a perfect, that's a that's fantastic because you bring up red teaming really quickly. Would you describe what that is for the listeners?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think that I'm going to give the best definition in the world, but Excellent. it's, you know, conceptually it is this idea of let's try to break this and let's go right. as far down this path as we can to see if we can cause it to do something bad and then you know it's It's almost almost like like bug bug testing in like a video game sense right right? of like bug testers in video games don't just play the game they're running at the corner where the rock meets the wall for 10 minutes trying every which way to get in between things they shouldn't be able to you know get through a door
0: right yeah looking for the boundary conditions or the edge cases of interactions yeah yeah, okay so you bring up you bring up this story that happened just recently where somebody was able to uh, interact with the language model. This is what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong. Interact with a, a large language model online and negotiated the purchase of a car for a dollar, I believe. Yeah,
1: I assume that that didn't actually happen. I, I mean, <laughs> in the sense that I assume they, they don't currently have the car. Right, right, but right. But yeah, I mean, the, the picture of the, the dialogue is there. And right. you can, for me at least, I can look at this and see exactly how this happened
0: hundred percent yeah and I think that that is one of the challenges that I think we should maybe call out for our listeners which is we have seen probably the most success with um, deploying language models into production when there is a little bit of a, a dis disintermediation between the the user and the system itself could you maybe kind of talk about that a little bit
1: yeah um, it's As someone who used to work on chatbots, you might find that I surprisingly don't believe in chatbots. Which is to say, to maybe a surprising degree. Um, I really think that just sort of the open text box of input is a siren song. It sounds really nice, but then when you actually get into it, it makes a lot of assumptions about what your users want to do, can do, won't do, um, I've seen a lot of applications where people wanted to put an open text box in front of people and let them do anything. And the very first thing they do is say, what do I do? <laughs> right. Um, and then on the flip side, you have people who say, oh, I know what I want to do. I want to get a car for a dollar. Right. Um, so it's, I really like tap back responses, actually. Uh, I'm very happy to be able to kind of quickly get a like, oh, did you want to say thank you? Did you want to say see you soon? Uh, and just pick from one of those. And that still levers the encoding part, the understanding in order to surface relevant suggestions. But now you're not leaning on the LLM for the, that same kind of totally open decoding. Yeah, and,
0: totally, uh, essentially having just a complete open possibility open possibilities around the input.
1: Yeah, or like I recently got an Apple Watch, right? And it, it gives you suggestions when, uh, when uh, my friend completes his exercise in the afternoon. And you know, it'll say like, good job, way to go. Or I need to call you later. Right. And uh, I'm never going to use that third one, but if a third of all my users are getting that suggestion, eventually someone's going to click on that. And, right. um, and you have an open text box. It's just, you know, there's infinity, weird answers, right? Yeah. In, in, infinite Even cor- if someone's not trying to be bad. Right. Infinite corner
0: cases. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Um, okay. I'd love to, um, kind of, as we wrap up here, be concrete. I understand that large language models are moving at a blistering pace. So, um, your recommendations now will probably be stale in six months. But if you had to pick, if you had to pick an open source large language model for a project, or a closed source commercial project, uh, large language model rather for a project,
1: which would you go with right now, just at this point in time? Yeah. Yeah, sticking to kind of this gut feeling that I have that the prompt you send in, like there's, all of them are extremely capable if you find the right way to use them. Uh, I'm actually very interested in the environments that are getting built up around some of these models. So on the open source side, LLAMA has been a really interesting LLAMA, LLAMA 2, all those things have been very interesting. And uh, this sort of like open LLAMA framework around it has been very cool for stuff like retrieval augmented generation right, um, or all sorts of other things. And I'm sure much more to come, but I've found that to be really easy to work with. So I've really enjoyed kind of um, the LLAMA models because of how they connect into this whole and, and that, that e- I was going to say the ecosystem yep. within LLAMA is so strong already. Yeah. And then kind of a same spirit answer, uh, AWS Bedrock is, is doing a lot of really impressive stuff. And uh, Claude is one of the models that kind of commonly gets used in there, but it really seems like that's also set up for a lot of really exciting development around the LLMs themselves. Because again, I'm interested in the encoding more than the decoding. Right, right.
0: Okay, so let's wrap up. Uh, just a fun little last question. Um, personally, if you could have AI automate
1: something for you in your life what would you want um i like to cook i like to eat i don't mind grocery shopping i really hate deciding what i'm going to eat and specifically sitting down on sunday and trying to plan out a whole week's worth of meals gotcha i would be thrilled to have basically in like an ai coach to figure out you know based on what i've got in the fridge based on what i typically want based on what my health goals are to build out sort of a meal plan, just send me the grocery list. I don't even want to approve it really. <laughs> just send it to me. I'll go buy everything. I'll cook it all. That's all fine. Um, I would be thrilled. Okay, that.
0: that that answer. I think your your answer is probably the closest to coming to fruition. I, I think something like that is eminently achievable. It's probably just getting your inventory correct.
1: It's not that different from a lot of services that are already out right. there. So you might say, why aren't you just using HelloFresh or something like that? <laughs> right. But, um, I don't have to answer that question.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. Reed, this was fantastic. Thank you so much for coming aboard. I really appreciate it, and uh, I, hope, I hope everybody learned a lot today. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thanks for having me.